Hello, and welcome to Kingwood United Methodist Church. Thank you for joining us today. Wherever you're listening from and whatever service you're listening to, we strongly believe because of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, there is always more to life. the Apostle Paul to the church at Philippi that echo through the centuries speaking to you and me words of instruction to the early church. Paul says, I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. And so somehow attaining the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained all of this, Maybe it's Apostle Paul. Not that I've already obtained all this. We've already arrived at my goal. But I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead... I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. This is the word of God for you and me, the people of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated, and as you are, let us bow together in prayer. May your spirit, O God, stand between me and your people so that the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts together will be shaped, formed, and molded into the good news of the gospel of Christ, in whose name we gather, in whose name we pray, and in whose name we will depart and seek to serve you faithfully. And all of God's people did say, amen. Now, for those of you who are OCD or really curious, this was not left here, okay? We're going to get to these in a moment. But let it pique your curiosity. What on earth is going to happen? Wait and see. (laughs) Follow up from last week's sermon, as I understand several retired pilots and some active pilots in the congregation of Kingwood United Methodist Church wanted to take me to task on that little question I asked about the whys of life. Like, why if the cabin actually happens to lose pressure and I get the privilege of passing out and missing all of the terror, does the, does the airline want me to put on an oxygen mask just so I miss nothing that's going to happen, right? Um, let me tip my hat and say that, um, yes, I, I do know why there's flotation device under the seats. We've got great pilots and I now understand entirely why I should put my oxygen mask on first and then assist those who are around me. Uh, But I will not tell you that there is a limited supply of oxygen in each plane. (laughs) Let that just rest in your brain to listen carefully to the pilots and listen carefully. We launched a new series today. We picked out this graphic, Pursuing Perfection. Now, some of you younger kids will have no clue what I'm talking about, but If I say this phrase, some of you are going to know exactly what I'm talking about. Life is not always Ward and June Cleaver and leave it to Beaver, right? And as we looked at the quote last week that came from an article in the Wall Street Journal that challenged the idea that there is any value in structure, in rigidity of roles, 
that it should be all stripped away so that everything becomes relative in this secular at all cost society. There is another aspect of having ideals into which we live when those ideals become for us nothing more than a goal to reach towards or a mask that we try to live behind. We intentionally chose this series, Pursuing Perfection, because we want to unpack the imagery that exists in a culture that says you're only going to be happy when you've got the perfect house, the perfect marriage, the perfect car, the perfect 401k investment, which I don't know what that is. I've tried everything these last few years. It's all over the place. Earn little, don't earn much, try to earn much, lose everything, get it back. There is no sense of that, but we strive at times and we live behind this mask. Not the mask that we can wear at times and take off, but a mask of image that we want others to think, this is who I am and this is how I have it all together. My friends, I want to tell you this truth of the gospel, even though these words are not specifically supported in scripture. My redneck Christian theology says, Every one of us is like a six-pack of Dr. Pepper. It's just that most of us have lost that plastic thing to hold it all together. Somewhere in every one of our lives is a moment of dysfunction. In fact, I've even wondered, is it time to put the fun back in dysfunction? But we expend all this energy to portray this kind of image that everything is wonderful, that everything is fine. And the reality is, sometimes it's not, sometimes it is. But can we just be honest? There's good days, there's difficult days. And our being willing to be vulnerable with each other is the greatest challenge to what God can do in our lives as we respond to the love of Christ. Now, historically, what we have talked about in the United Methodist tradition, remember that John Wesley never left the Anglican church. So here are your history lessons and catching you up on your confirmation. John Wesley was an Anglican priest, i.e. the Church of England. He never left that. So when Methodism came to the Americas, it was the mode of growth within the life of the Americas because it wasn't going to be the Church of England. Thus, John Wesley, having been identified as someone who was methodic, had a group of people called Methodists, right? He's at the Oxford, in Oxford, he's got this group called the Holy Club that he gets together. They're emphasizing the work of the Holy Spirit, and they were so methodic in their meeting and in their prayer and in their rising early and their serving others that people at Oxford would look from the outside and laugh at them and say, oh, look at them, those pious ones, They are so methodic in what they do. They are called the Methodist. That's where our heritage came from. Wesley strongly emphasizes, uh, and I don't want to go too deep here, but if you want to do some research, you can look at the Ordo Salutis, which Wesley begins to talk about the ways in which we respond to God's grace and we move initially into uh, a place of awareness of what's called provenient grace, 
All of this is the same grace, but there's three primary modes of grace. This provenient grace of God, which is above and beyond our understanding. The best imagery, the provenient grace of God, is the mother who cares for that child. The child can do nothing for themselves, but the mother is not only responding to the needs of the child, she is actively reaching out, she's caring for the child. God's grace is beyond our ability to comprehend or control. We can choose to respond. But God's grace is always being poured out to us like sunshine on a bright day. It doesn't stop or start. It's always there. It's God's reaching to us from creation to crucifixion. God reaching to us. This is the provenient grace of God beyond your control. But you do have a moment to choose to respond. Justifying grace is what Christ has done on our behalf in dying to death on the cross. That's the second major way in which we talk about justifying grace. If you're working on a computer, you know that if you're trying to align everything, you justify the margins, right? Or as one adult confirmation material alliterated, think of justifying grace as that moment when you come to faith, you ask for forgiveness, and then it becomes just as if I had never sinned. This justifying. But it doesn't stop there. One of Wesley's distinct emphasis that we pick up and have celebrated is the work of the Holy Spirit that is already begun and provenient, that is made clear and justifying, but continues in sanctifying grace. And in that sanctifying grace, it's that moment in which we make ourselves available. Because you see, your conversion is both a moment of turning when you repent and a lifelong process of being saved. Paul says in another place in Philippians, Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. I'm reminded of the man who would would go to every revival in the little county in which he lived, and he developed a reputation. You see, he would come down front and plead for forgiveness and throw himself at the altar, and then he would go back to living his ways, which were a challenge ethically to everybody in the community. And he went from the Nazarene to the Baptist to the Methodist to the Missional Baptist to the Independent Baptist to the Missouri Synod Lutheran to the Wisconsin Synod Lutheran to the ELCA. Finally, he comes to one revival and he comes up front and he starts his little, Lord, fill me, fill me with your Holy Spirit. Lord, forgive me, Lord, fill me with your Holy Spirit. And a wise woman from the back of the church who was a member of this community said, don't do it, Lord, he leaks. But you know, life is this constant process. Have you ever had that moment when things just seem so right? Let me tell you a so right moment. Last year, Christmas was the worst Christmas I've ever experienced. For the first time in my life when I can remember, I wasn't in church. And pretty much because I got COVID, you didn't get to have Christmas Eve. I was the third person on staff to get it. We canceled everything. You remember that wonderful Christmas Eve last year? I do. Let me tell you what, that's that's not the worst of it. Our, new, our first grandson was born the day before I got the test, which meant I had to tell my wife, that child we've been expecting all this time, we won't be seeing him for at least 10 days. That was the hardest message to proclaim. And I was absolutely brokenhearted because of what I felt like I had done to you, what I felt like I had done to my family, But when that day came that we were able to go over 
And I was able to hold that first grandchild, David James, in my arms. The world was perfect. The world was amazing. Now, I held him second. Grandma got to him first for right reasons, right? And and I don't know where I had more. I don't know if I had more joy in watching my daughter and son-in-law as they lived into being parents or, or watching the swell of emotion that was in Sean as she gathered David James up and held him for the first time. And almost as if he knew in his little infant life, his little arm went up over her shoulder and he leaned in. Or if it was the moment that I actually held him. I can't separate those. All I know is that in that moment, there was this beautiful thing. So when we talk about perfection, we lean into pursuing perfection, not as the world defines perfection, but as we see revealed in Scripture and in our United Methodist heritage that we are called to pursue being made perfect in love. This is why we chose this text from Philippians. As Paul mentions to the early church, look, I haven't already obtained it, but I'm striving for it. I'm I'm pressing on. The sense in which the walk with Christ is something that is both the fullness of a moment, but it's also a pursuit. And what is the end of that? Well, up until Wesley's really teasing with this, the idea was basically fire insurance for eternity, right? You come to Christ so you don't burn in hell, that's over. Wesley says, well, what? Why do we have to wait to be made fully perfect in love? These moments can happen for us even here on this side of eternity. We don't have to wait for them, right? So when we we break into the world that is filled with hatred and division and and we make ourselves fully available to God, there is a moment that is is perfection. God's perfect love is made because, because of what we make available in ourselves. And the historical language in the Wesleyan theology is, Entire sanctification because we have made ourselves completely available to the righteousness of God. Now, it doesn't mean that you never sin again. It doesn't mean that you've got perfect knowledge. It doesn't mean that you'll never make a mistake. It doesn't mean that you're free from hardship, heartache, or hurt. It doesn't mean that you're free from temptation. After all, we look at Hebrews chapter 4 and we see that the imagery that is given to us is that in Christ we have a great high priest who, like us, was tempted in every way in his humanity, but yet he did not sin. It, it doesn't mean that it's freed from future growth. You see, this pursuing perfection, this holiness of heart and life, this being made entirely sanctified, this doesn't mean that we have graduated and the work is done. Here's what it means. It means we have a profound love of God that puts in our hearts, that deposits in our hearts the words that blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for theirs is the kingdom of God. It means that when you read the words that thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, you have a desire to live fully into that, to make yourself available and make room in your heart for what God is doing. It means that you choose to be less controlled by the sin of this world and more open to what God is doing. Why is it, my friends, that we will pursue perfection in almost every other area of our life than our own faith? Thanks again for joining us for today's message. We will return to the sermon in a moment, but first, we would like to ask for you to rate, share, and subscribe to our podcast. We believe God is doing some amazing things here at KUMC, and your feedback helps our church to reach new listeners that we wouldn't otherwise be able to reach. 
Now, let's get back to the work. We've been so infected with this message of the American culture that I don't want to offend anybody. You believe what you want to believe, whatever it is. If dandelions, you believe in dandelions, that's fine. I don't want to offend or hurt you. And the church must, with grace and love, stand for its historic understanding revealed in Scripture. And the problem is, we, like sponges, have absorbed too much of the culture of this world, and it has replaced or filled the emptiness of our Christian understanding. I just wonder, I'm going to look at the congregation real carefully when I do this. I see people smiling for different ways. I know what sound that normally means to some of you. Hey, I hadn't always been a preacher. I haven't always been a preacher. Oh, I should just do this. I don't have to pour like this, do I? Revealing my path and journey, aren't I, huh? You know, Jim Welch said, pour it on the edge, Bert, pour it on the edge. Don't let it foam up. That's what he meant. <laughs> if I take this sponge, and this is your life. It's a life created by God, fearfully and wonderfully, each one of you absolutely unique, right? And if I place the sponge, you already know what's going to happen when it hits the Dr. Pepper. What's it going to do, folks? It's going to soak it up, isn't it? We know that's going to happen. We'll do it anyway. And it's just going to soak it up. And there'll be less in the cup and more in the sponge. And if I flip this sponge over, but I'm going to use it for the late service as well, so that's going to have to be good enough for you, okay? <laughs> this has got to, it's got to work for two, two services. You get the concept, right? The problem is this, my friends, really simply... We, like sponges, have soaked up the pathetic theology of secularism in our world around us rather than coming to scriptures and the historic teaching of the faith to shape our understanding. What we tend to do is we pick up little memes and Facebook things or somebody else that you've read and it becomes a substitute in the life of your brain that God has given you in your soul ends up soaking up everything around the world and there's no room left when all that's done and you just try to fix your filled sponge life into the scriptures and then when you come to something that challenges you you do what Timothy Keller calls Bowing at the altar of now. Keller writes and, re, and, and speaks about this imagery that one of the great challenges to embracing the historic faith as the beginning point and then understanding how life can work, we say, well, because we know this now, that can't have been what they meant. There's a very prominent United Methodist pastor, very successful, very successful. He's done amazing work and still does amazing work. And he came forth with this idea a couple of years ago that, oh, to solve the problems in the division of Methodism, all we're going to, we've got, I know, Scripture just really is in three buckets. That's the problem. If we just understand, Scripture's in three buckets. And in one bucket, you see, one bucket is, well, one bucket is the Word of God. 
that it is timeless and that it's truthful and it remains true for everybody. That's one bucket. But see, but see there, well, wait, there's another bucket, this pastor proclaims. There's another bucket. And that bucket is, well, there was a truth in that passage, but it was only for a particular time. You see, it doesn't apply now. It doesn't make sense now. Therefore, it doesn't really apply to us. So now we've got two buckets, timeless truth that goes in a bucket. Then we have this, well, it was good then, but it's not true now bucket. And then there's a third bucket this pastor suggests that the third bucket is actually, it wasn't even inspired by God. It's just a cultural kind of thing. My friends, the church has already worked through this. We did so when we struggled first against Marcionism, and we need to read the history of our faith. We need to read the saints who gave their lives to preserve the historic faith for you and me so we don't let the culture of this world and shallow bucket theologies fill us up a sponge. And we know what the scriptures say when Paul says, I press on towards the great call of Christ Jesus. I haven't already attained it, but I press on. We know what it means when Jesus speaks the words in the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for they shall be comforted by God, not by memes and not by hallmark. One of the great underlying biblical themes that Wesley uses to cast this imagery of entire sanctification in the full part of our life is from Matthew chapter 5, verse 48. And as good biblical scholars, I know that you will remember that the fifth chapter is where we launch into the Sermon on the Mount, this teaching about who is God and what does it look like to be a reflection of God in this world. And we read in Hebrews chapter, uh, Matthew chapter 5, verse 48, and I use this translation from the Passion Translation. If you go to Bible Gateway, it's a beautiful thing. The Passion Translation takes both the Aramaic understanding and the Hebrew understanding where possible and the Greek. It takes these multiple languages that were part of the multilingual Jesus and it unpacks the meanings and rounds them out. And this is what Matthew 5, 48 says in the Passion's translation. Since you are children of a perfect Father in heaven, become perfect like Him. The NIV translation says, since your heavenly Father is perfect, be perfect. But this meaning below the surface is what does this word telos mean? Both the Greek and Aramaic intention for this word perfect are almost the same. It's whole, it's complete, it's fully mature, it's lacking nothing, it's well-rounded. In other words, what Jesus was teaching is in the Sermon on the Mount, don't let your life soak up everything in the world around you. Look to God. And let your life reflect what God is like. Doesn't that sound just like what Paul has just told us? Not that I have already obtained it, but one thing I do, I press on to take hold of that. Do you remember how the word is? I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. So friends, you can be like a sponge and soak up the world and live a miserable existence that's driven by how your life compares to the false platitudes on Facebook, Instagram, and Snapshot or whatever it is, Snapchat thing. Or you can say it really doesn't matter what the world says. 
I'm going to immerse myself in Scripture so that I will know and absorb the biblical understanding of who God is. Friends, we, we only have to look at our entertainment industry to see that the world hungers for a true message. I will give you this illustration that some of you younger ones will have no clue what I'm talking about, but um, music, I need y'all young, young folk to know, music hadn't always been on the cloud, and we haven't always had XM radio. Back in the day, we had things called LPs. Some of us called them vinyl. All right, adults, so this is group participation. Get those helium hands ready. How many of you had a favorite LP album, huh? Yeah, had some vinyl. And we would spin the vinyl, right? Remember, remember the joke that, if, that, that there was a time period in the late 70s and early 80s, they talked about backmasking with some of Black Sabbath and some of that stuff. And if, and if you roll the, the vinyl backwards, you'll hear messages like, you will worship Satan. You know, and they, they had all these crazy messages. And then the joke was, do you know what happens when you play the record backwards on a country and western song? You get your wife back, your dog comes back, you get out of prison. Culture is crying and hungering for hope. And all you have to do is listen to the messages of the entertainment industry that provides you shallow, false promises that look a lot like what even a Methodist preacher suggested are three buckets. I listen to a lot of music. I love to watch all kinds of movies. And you may be surprised that my genre of movies stretches everywhere from Nacho Libre to The Fight Club and most everything in between. Let me quote you a little bit from Tyler Durden's character in The Fight Club. It's not worth or anything redeeming to tell you the purpose of the movie. I simply quote this to illustrate the way in which the entertainment industry, even in the most violent of movies, reflects the hunger of our culture for a truth that transcends the current circumstance. Durden's character says this, we're the middle children of history, man. No purpose, no place. We have no great war, no great depression. Our great war is a spiritual war. Our great depression is our lives. We've all been raised on television to believe that one day we'd all be millionaires and movie gods and rock stars. But we won't. And we're slowly learning that fact and we're very pissed off. How do you get any clear? A world that is angry? has found that the platitudes of what is offered are empty as buckets. And the world is hungering for hope. When we think what it means to pursue perfection in the Christian journey, it is not a perfect little family. Thanks be to God, it's not about having a full head of hair and being able to wear skinny jeans when you get over 50 because I wouldn't apply. And by the way, I can't find skinny jeans in a 42-inch waist. <laughs> and my hairline isn't just receding, it's gone on recess. <laughs> but if we are serious, how? How do we get to that place where we make our lives so available to God? 
when you leave today, I haven't made enough for every single person because I didn't know if every single person would want one, but there's a half sheet of paper between the hand sanitizers in the narthex, beyond the narthex. I've listed for you directly from the United Methodist Church Wesley's historic questions that were asked when he formed the band groups together. And I want to remind you of this. We can talk about theological platitudes, my friend. We can, we can wrap this sermon up and you can say, man, I sure hope they heard that preacher. That's the funniest thing I always hear when someone says, good sermon, I hope they were listening. <laughs> or you? And we can talk about the theological framework of having these ideas of things. Yeah, but do you know where it begins? It begins right here in every one of us. It begins with the men in the life of the church recognizing we must no longer take a back seat and let our lives take responsibility for everything else and say, oh, honey, you take care of the kids, you take care of teaching, you take care of men. We've got to step up in the life of the church, take our place of leadership, and take our place of leadership in the life of our homes and walk alongside the amazing partners that God has given us in life. We, must, we are called to serve. Basically, guys, if we would just do half of what the women do in the life of the church, this would be an entirely different place. Men, we've got to step up. Church across the board, men and women, we have got to be committed to pouring our lives into the Scripture and finding places that we are held accountable with each other in the walk of Christ. The treasures of the faith are here for us. The choice we have is quite simple. What are we going to soak up? All the stuff of this world and leave no room for God? Or friends, hear this call. When we repent of our sin, we wring out all the junk and messages and tapes of this world. And now, we have room for God. Let's pray together. God, would your Holy Spirit pour upon us and awaken us to the pouring of your Spirit? Would you help us to recognize in each of our lives what we need to turn away from to make space and room to turn towards you? Would you help us as individuals to live faithfully from the waters of our baptism would you pour your strength upon the men and women in the life of the church to have conversations openly about their walk with Christ together, to pray together, to talk with their children and help their children grow in the faith so they would have confidence that you are a God of love. God, not one of us has attained the great and high calling of Christ Jesus. But help us to live into the words of the Scripture that we press on we press on to lay hold of what you already have grasped and laid hold of in our lives in Christ. And this we pray in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And all of God's people did say, Amen.